0: quite the song. I praise God for our young people up here this morning leading out. Wasn't that nice? I love it. When I heard their their soft, tender voices back there, I had to come out and see who was up here singing. I invite you all to pray for Pastor Ron. He's not feeling well, so he asked me to step in his behalf today. So let's keep him in prayer. And, um, you know, as we think about the Sabbath. Let us not be distracted by the enemy. Let us get the best we can out of this 24-hour period God has set aside for you and me to grow in the knowledge of him and to serve and minister to others. You know, this year, my friend, uh, my son and friend, my son made a Uh, New Year's Eve resolution to read 50 books this year. That's basically about one a week. I guess during his two weeks vacation, he's not going to read any. But he said, I'm going to read 50 books this year. And I thought, wow, great. I know what to get you for your birthday. Books. (laughs) And so I started praying. And asking God, you know, what book should I give to him? Right away, somebody would think, great controversy. Give him the great controversy. Give him the desire of the ages. Yeah, give him the desire of the ages. You know, there's all great books, you know. And, but I, I'm really thinking strategically how to reach my son's heart. You know, he, him and I, after I, I came out of federal prison, I brought him into the faith and, and started guiding him to Jesus, but he really never made Jesus his own. How many of you have children out there that haven't really made Jesus their own yet, right? You know, they, they're somewhat living off mom and dad's faith. And recently I sat down to, with them and I said, Look, son, if I ever did anything to cause you to, to not want to seek out God, I'm sorry. I, I did my best to give you a good example of Christian living and to be like Christ. But I know I came short. I'm human. I fell short. Many of us have. We all have, haven't we? And I asked for his forgiveness, but I told him, I said, look, you cannot, you cannot live off my experiences. You cannot live off of my testimony. You have to have your own experience, your own living encounter with God, your own testimony. You have to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ in your own life. And so I started thinking, my wife and I, she joined me in praying what books to give them. So I gave him a couple of different books. I gave him a book by John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Another book many people don't know he wrote was called Holy War. It's a very interesting book. It's another allegory about the Christian battle and fight against evil. A very good book. And I, I gave him a book by another uh, gentleman, uh, Bonhoeffer, of his personal experience as a, as a pastor and being persecuted during Hitler's time, and I gave him a book by um, Desmond Doss, right? And many of you read that book before, Desmond Doss' life Story. And then I gave him this book, Extreme Ownership. And I started reading this book, and then I, I didn't make it all the way through it, but when I gave it to him, I figured, you know what, I better go back and read the whole thing myself. And so I started reading through it. And this is about a naval SEAL commander that fought several times, several tours over in Iraq. And then he came back and he would start training naval SEALs. And he understood that in order for them to be effective in their mission, in order to be all in for it, they had to believe a few things. They had to understand a few things. Now, I served in the U.S. Marine Corps, and going through training, they would train us in a very intense, rigorous way. And during the training, it was their job to persuade you that without question, without any doubt in your mind, in the battlefield, you would listen to your commander-in-chief, that you'd put all on the line, you'd risk everything, life and limb, for the cause. But you had to believe in that cause. He says this in page 12 of his book. He says, we hope to dispel the myth that military leadership is easy because subordinates robotically and blindly follow orders. Now, when God created us, he, all, he gave us all the freedom of choice, the freedom of will, amen? And so God doesn't ask us to blindly follow him or he doesn't force us to follow him and to follow orders. Why? He says here in his book, he says, on the contrary, U.S. military personnel, and I would say all of you sitting here today are smart, creative, free-thinking individuals, human beings. He goes on to say, he says, they must literally risk life and limb to accomplish the mission. For this reason, they must believe in the cause for which they are fighting. They must believe in the plan they are asked to execute. And most important, they must believe in and trust the leader that has asked them to follow him. It's kind of like the gospel today. The only difference is my commander-in-chief on the battlefield did not die in my behalf. Jesus died in your behalf and mine. Yet, he lives again. Amen? And for this cause, we have good news to share with the rest of the world. I invite you to bow your heads as I kneel and pray. Gracious, loving Father, we thank you for the Sabbath. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Lord, open the eyes of our understanding this morning and give us a knowledge of you, a revelation, a stirring of our heart, a unsettling of our ways, if need be. But Lord, I ask that when we leave here today, we do not leave as we have come, but we leave with a changed attitude, a change of heart, a deeper commitment and conviction for the good news that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10. I entitled this sermon, The Great Gift Giver. And as we proceed through today's service, you'll understand why the great gift giver. Mark chapter 10. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Just prior to the rich young ruler running up to him and asking him what shall he do to inherit eternal life, Jesus was with a group of people and he was telling his disciples, don't suffer the little ones that come to me. And he tells them that except you receive the kingdom of God as this little child, you will not make it. Could you imagine? Jesus taking your baby. We do baby dedications up here. How many of you love baby dedications? I love it when I see a parent bring their little baby up here and dedicate their baby. And I want to ask special prayer right now for uh, Jacob and Emily Gibbs. Uh, Jacob's is a pastor in our conference. His wife had came down with a very rare type of cancer and she was pregnant. And um, they they were hoping that Um, they could stem off certain treatment, you know, put off certain treatments until she came to a term long enough that they could induce labor and she could give delivery to that baby. And praise the God, God answered that prayer and she gave birth to a little girl, amen? Amen. So I, I ask that you pray for this family. He's my brother in Christ and we love him as we do all of you. He's part of our family in the big family of God, but let's keep that family in prayer because they have some challenges ahead of them. But can you imagine imagine Jesus holding your little baby in his hands and pronouncing a blessing on your child? How radiant would be your face, how, how happy you would be. And just imagine that as he's doing this, there's, there's somebody in the background there just listening Unless you be converted as this little child, unless you be as this little child, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. And here's this young man, wealthy, educated, in good social status, thinking about his standing before God. And so it says, he, after this, when he was gone forth into the way, Jesus is now departing, there came one running, verse 17, and kneeled to him very interesting that he didn't just run up to him, but he knelt down before him, perhaps on one knee, looking up after, looking up in his face, and asked, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus would say unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good, but that is God, but one that is God. Thou knows the commandments. Do not Commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered it and said unto him, Master, all these I've observed from my youth up. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and he said, One thing thou lackest. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and then... Thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up thy cross and follow me. Now, I have a question for you. Why did Jesus not mention the first four commandments? I've been thinking about this. Why didn't he mention the first four? Why did he just mention the last six? Well, first of all, this man was an Israelite, he knew the law of God. But I believe, and I would suggest to you today, that Jesus left him out because he was speaking to the man's heart when he said, one thing you lackest. See, Christ read the young man's heart and directed him in the path of righteousness that would restore his soul. Jesus was revealing to him that his love for money, recognition, self-exaltation was a violation of the whole law. He did not love God supremely in his heart. His affections were on the world. His money was his idol, and selfish ambition and desire to make a name for himself was taking God's name in vain. He lacked integrity. His allegiance was with the world and not to God. Therefore, he could not enter into the rest that God had invited him to through the Sabbath because his mind was constantly elsewhere. To keep, to keep back from God, however little it may be, will give en- the enemy a vantage ground over you. The invitation Jesus was giving to him was the remedy for his sin-sick soul and the answer to his question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I would recommend to you and suggest to you today that's the same thing for us. We come to ask, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus points us to the law. He says, one thing you lack. What is it that we're lacking? What is it for us? You know, before God brought Israel out of Egypt, he had them sacrifice a lamb. They had to trust in that blood because judgment was coming. Judgment's coming, friends, and Jesus is calling us to trust in his shed blood. Nothing else, his shed blood. And when God delivered them and they made it out of Egypt and they come to the Red Sea, you look and see the enemy followed them. Pharaoh came after them. Satan's not going to let you go. He's not going to make it easy for you. When Jesus delivers you, when you accept his sacrifice on the cross and you experience that freedom of forgiveness The enemy's coming for you because he knows if he loses you, he's gained an enemy, and he's also going to have to deal with somebody that has received the gospel in the heart that's going to share it with somebody else, and now he's got to deal with somebody working in his his territory, winning others to Christ, getting others to know Jesus and to be free. And so Jesus would point us to the law, and as they came after Jesus, them as Pharaoh came after the Israelites there was no place for them to go but one and that was in the water and Jesus tells us there's one place for us to go and that's the water that's baptism that's a renewed life that's what we need and when he brought them to the Mount Sinai before he would declare his law he would tell them well let me go back let me go on I'll come back to that he would tell them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of house of bondage. It is not they themselves that set themselves free. And God is telling us as he was telling them, you did not deliver yourself from the enemy. You did not deliver yourself from the power of Satan. You have no ability whatsoever to be free from his deceptions and his ways. It is God that delivered them. It is God that delivers us. We have no part at all in setting ourselves free from the bondage of sin. And so he would say, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, I come to realize that we need revival. How many of you believe we need our church needs Revival. We need revival. And we're told the only way revival is going to come, and that's if we're on our knees and we're praying. But I know that not only as we're praying, but we need to be in the Word of God. And I know not only do we need to be praying and in the Word of God, we need to be serving God. Because God pours his Spirit out on people that are serving him, that are praying, that are reading, and serving. You're going to get the anointing of the Spirit, no doubt about it. And so going back to this quote in the Great Controversy, it says this, it is only as the law of God is restored to its rightful position that there can be a revival of primitive faith and godliness among his professed people. Now, how many of you heard the quote in Great Controversy, page 488, that before the last judgments of God are visited upon the earth, there will be a revival of primitive godliness? Have you heard that before? How many of you read this verse or this quote 10 pages earlier? A revival of primitive faith, friends. This is what we need if there's going to be a revival of primitive godliness in our lives. How do we get there? How can God instill in our hearts a revival of faith? I want to take you on a little journey this morning in hopes to bring us to that point. You know, when God created Adam and Eve, he left nothing undone that they needed for, his, for their well-being, for their, their growth and their um, uh, understanding of what he expected of them in this world. And when God says, thou shalt have another gods before me, is he, is he being selfish? Now think about this for a minute. Is he asking too much of us? How many of you are married? <clears throat> How many of you are hoping to get married someday? (laughs) You know, when you stand up at the altar and you exchange vows with your spouse, is it wrong for your spouse to look at you and say, now, honey, you're not going to have any other women before me. And for the husband to say to the wife or wife-to-be, now, sweetheart, you're not going to have any other men before me. Wouldn't it be odd if the other one looked at that, the spouse-to-be, and say, hey, now, you're being a little selfish. (laughs) What would be the outcome? I think I'll see you later, right? Absolutely not. There's nothing selfish about it at all. Exclusivity and commitment are absolutely essential if there's going to be a healthy, happy, safe Relationship between us and God, and between our spouses. Now, the, when God sent out the law of God, He put it out in a set of boundaries to protect our relationship with Him. Just as in a marriage, there are boundaries put in place if it's going to be healthy, happy, and safe. And so He asks us not to have any other gods before Him. So I want to reflect a little bit this morning on His faithfulness. Because God is faithful. And that's what he's asking of us. And that's what happens in a marriage vows. they their exchange. You're asking your spouse to be faithful. Be what? Faithful. So, let's go on a little journey. Because we can't save ourselves. He's provided everything for it. In his faithfulness, he provided a sacrifice. God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. But then the son had to do something. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. So God provided a sacrifice for you and I. Now, because we're so broken, you and I are not attracted to holiness. It's not in us. We are not... (laughs) We are so sinful... Even coming from the mother's womb, there's so many things, hereditary brokenness handed down to us that we take on that we do not have the ability to even come to this sacrifice and say, yes, I accept it. So what does he do? He does something more. Jesus says to us in John 6:44, No man can come to, this, come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So he provides a sacrifice, and then in order for us to come to that sacrifice, he begins to tug at our heart. He begins to draw us. So we come to that sacrifice, but now we need something. We need faith in that sacrifice, right? So what does he do? He gives you and I a measure of faith. He's the author and finisher Of our faith. Everyone born into this world is given a little bit of faith. And in order for that faith to grow, you got to exercise it. How many of you heard the term step out in faith, right? Just step out in faith and do it. He gives us a wonderful measure of faith. And as we respond to His divine influence and the faith in the sacrifice that He has offered, He wants to do more for us. He wants to give us the gift of repentance and forgiveness and grace that would abound over where sin has abounded in our life. This is an amazing God. He is faithful through and through. You realize you and I cannot even have a little inkling of sorrow for sin in our heart without this gift. He knew it. He understood it. As we talked about on the Sabbath School panel this morning in the book of Ephesians, it talks that it says, from the foundation of the world you and I were chosen to be in Christ Jesus, in him holy and without blame. So he provided everything. In Romans 5 20, this is one of my favorite promises that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But it doesn't end there, because God is so good. He is so faithful. God does not just want to forgive you and I for our sins. The purpose of the gospel is to restore us, and through his faithfulness, he gives grace to restore by his power. It tells us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, 8, many of us know this by heart, I'm sure, and if you don't, I hope you will memorize it. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is what? Gift. That's why I titled this The Great Gift Giver. All these are gifts, friends. He's speaking to Paul. He says, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul would declare, Therefore, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. A gift. Through his faithfulness, he gives all of these, but it has to come through one major gift, and that's the Holy Spirit. He tells us that if you, being evil, know how to give good what? Gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give, right? Again, give the Holy Spirit to those that ask. In Isaiah 40, 29, I love this. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. So through his faithfulness, he gives us the blessed assurance that if we're willing, if we're willing and do not resist him who is faithful, he will complete the work that he's begun in us, as Jesus would inspire Paul to write in Philippians 1 6. We can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it unto the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we conclude through this. Through his faithfulness, now listen, follow this. This is a summary of this. Through his faithfulness, he gives us his son. Jesus lays down his life. The Father draws us to his Son. We are given a measure of faith that we may believe and repentance that we may turn away from, the, from living a sinful life. He offers forgiveness to those that confess, saving us by his grace through the faith that he gives and sends the Holy Spirit to bring us these gifts and more that we may walk in the light as he is in the light so we may be cleansed, healed, re restored in his likeness and his image, completing the work that he's begun in you and I. Now this is good news. Jesus said, I've come to give them life and life more abundantly. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill and destroy, but he's come to give you and I abundant life. Now In order for us to receive this abundant life, we have to respond. We have to open our heart. We have to cooperate with him. And in so doing, there's more that he gives. Can you believe that? We just read all those verses about what he gives. Everything for salvation he gives. But there's more. In order to receive that, we have to receive this. We have to receive all the former. He says, my peace... Peace I leave with you, my peace I give on to you. You and I cannot truly have peace in life unless we respond to all the other gifts that he is giving. And then as you receive all of this, it's almost like Jesus is standing here today saying, these things have I spoken unto you that your joy may remain in you and that your joy might be full. He's left nothing that is necessary for your salvation and mine undone. And so, he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also, what? Freely give us all things. These are just a few of many promises, friends, in the Bible that is why Jesus said, take this Gospel to the world. Because not only does he want us to know this good news, he wants everybody else in this world that has not heard his name or do not know about these things to hear it, to experience it. And so in this first commandment, he lays the foundation for our salvation based upon his faithfulness, friends. And he's calling us to share this good news with others. Now, when my wife and I were out west doing Bible work, two people, two people, I mean, we met a lot of people that really made impressions on our lives, but these two individuals, Barbara Main and Mrs. Miller, made a deep, lasting impression on each of us. Barbara Main was a member of the Church of Sutherland, and she was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and she... Constantly continued to get the worse and the worse. And she didn't want to be in a hospital. She didn't want to be in a nursing home. And she was, had means well enough to have workers, caretakers, come to her house and care for her. And her burden on her heart was that her caretakers would know Jesus. And so she called me up and she says, Would you and your wife come over and do Bible studies? And we said, Sure. So we'd go over every week, and we would do Bible studies with her with her her caregivers. And she had a, a hospital bed out in the living room, and she would tell them, "Get me ready for Bible study," and they'd get her ready every week. And we'd go and we'd do Bible study. And I was so impressed by this woman's determination for others to know Jesus, even while she's lying there dying. It moved me together, the whole congregation. My wife and I got the whole congregation together and we record it when we all get to heaven. We all sang the song to her and we took it and played it for her at home. She just cried. But her burden was that her, co- her uh, caregivers would know Jesus. One day, my wife and I got there for Bible study And that morning, she told her caregivers, swab out my mouth, get my hair ready. I want to be ready for Bible study. And when we showed up, she was sleeping. We did our Bible study. She never woke up. She died in her sleep that afternoon. When that woman wakes up in the resurrection... This is just amazing. When she wakes up in the resurrection, the last thought that she had before she went to sleep was, get me ready for Bible study. Dennis and Melody are coming over. When she wakes up, she's not going to see Dennis and Melody. She's going to see Jesus coming in the clouds of glory. She's going to see Jesus and probably think to herself, I didn't know you were coming over for Bible study. Friends, she experienced this good news, the faithfulness of God in her heart, and there was nothing that eclipsed from her mind the importance of sharing the everlasting gospel with somebody else, even to her dying day. Mrs. Miller, an amazing woman. I've shared about her before, and some of you may have remember this story, but many of you may not have heard it. My wife and I were preaching, I was preaching at a church in Sutherland, and, uh, or no, in Canyonville, Oregon. And at the end of the service, uh, this lady came up to me, and I was preaching about Philip, and, or I mean Andrew, Andrew in the Bible. You read about Andrew, the disciple in the Bible, he's in John chapter 1, John chapter 6, John chapter 12, and Andrew you'll find he he didn't he didn't preach any elaborate sermons that won thousands of people he didn't build any churches he didn't write any books in the Bible but you read about his life and what you find Andrew always doing is bringing somebody to Jesus Now after preaching that sermon Mrs. Miller came up to me in the foyer and she walked up with a cane and she introduced herself and she said were you the one preaching today And I thought, well, yeah. Um, and, And then she says, well, I can't see very well. Now I understand why she wanted to make sure she had the right guy. And she says, my name is Mrs. Miller. I'm 103 years old. Now she walked up to me with a cane. She says, I have a problem. I said, well, what is it, Mrs. Miller? I mean, 103, you probably have a lot of problems, but what's really burdening your heart today? What was burdening her heart was this. She says, I've been handing out the great controversy. I'm on my third case right now. She'd go into town. She'd walk into town with somebody's, somebody's assistance. And, and Canyonville, Oregon is not a very big community. And she'd go to the grocery store, and she'd just wait to encounter people and give them the great controversy. 103 years old, still serving the Lord, determined, believed in the message, believed in the master, was not going to let nothing get in her way. Dim eyesight, age wasn't going to bother her. She wanted somebody to know Jesus Christ. And she said to me, you know, I, I, I just have a problem gaining decisions from people. I said, well, tell me, tell me a little bit about it. And she says, like the other day, she says, uh, here's an example. She says, I was trying to get this lady to take a great controversy. She, she asked her, she says, do you, do you believe Jesus is coming soon? And the lady said, yes, I do believe her. I believe that. She goes, well, I want to share this book with you. And she says, no, I have my own faith. She goes, well, but you said you believe Jesus is coming soon. Yes, I believe that. She says, well, this book is, will help you get ready. Well, then give it to me. And she took it from her. I said, well, Mrs. Miller, you got a decision right there. You're doing great. I encouraged her. I prayed with her. I said, just keep on sharing. I believe she lived to be about 100, just shy of 106. Her great-great-granddaughter, if I got it right, Chris Simons, lives out there in um, uh, popular Montana where we're building the church out there. And so... Um, It's a blessing to meet some of her family. And Chris is like this too. She wants to continue to share the gospel. These two women, nothing stood in their way. They had no other God in their life. Jesus was supreme in their affections, in their heart, in everything they had. He was number one. So what would it look like to have another God in our lives today? How many of you have prayed this prayer? Search me and try me, O Lord, and show me if there's any evil way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Have you prayed that prayer before? Let me see your hand if you prayed that prayer before. Yeah. How many of you are afraid to pray that prayer? Don't raise your hand. You know, when you pray that prayer, something's going to happen. My wife and I, I tell you, we pray the prayer and then, woo, man, something in our character just shines out that shouldn't even be there and we didn't even know it was there. But you know what? That's good news too, isn't it? Isn't it nice to know that God just doesn't let us stumble down the path of destruction blindly, that he puts speed bumps in the way? Sometimes he puts somebody in our life that says, hey, you're out of bounds. You need to rethink how your attitude is, the way you're living, or way you behave. That's good news. So a couple quotes from inspiration. What would it look like to have another God before us. Let the Spirit speak to us today. It says, not let selfish pride be lifted up and served as a God. Pride is a terrible thing, friends. It's terrible. And in every human heart, there is pride. And we have to put it to death. I was just picking up some organic compost yesterday, and there was a sign there at the window where you pay. It says, everybody has an opinion Perhaps their own opinion that maybe somebody cares about, but I don't. The lady at the cashier wanted to make sure if you came to complain, keep it to yourself. Pride is a terrible, terrible thing to have in the human heart. Sometimes people are afraid to say they're sorry, they're afraid to admit they were wrong. It takes humility and humbleness to confess that we were out of line or we're out of the way. And over the last several years, I won't say several, but last three years, a lot of people were wrong. And I don't know if they'll ever say they're sorry, and I'm not looking for somebody to apologize to me, but there's a lot of people that need to kneel down and open their heart to God and realize that selfish pride was a God in their life. Let not money be a god. Some people are consumed with worldly ambition in acquiring great amount of wealth, and money is their god. If sensuality is not kept under the control of the higher powers of the mind, based passions will rule the being. And so she sums it up. Everything that is made the subjection, subject of undue thought and admiration, absorbing the mind, is a God chosen before the Lord. This comes from patriarchs and prophets here. Jehovah, the eternal, self-existent, uncreated one himself, the source and sustainer of all, is alone entitled to our supreme reverence and worship. Man is what? Man is forbidden to give any other object the first place in his affections or his service. Whatever we cherish that tends to lessen our love for God or interfere with the service due him, of that we make a God. Do you have another God in your life? What is it in your life? And I ask myself the same question. Is there something in my life that I cherish that tends to lessen my love for God or it interferes with my service due to him. Sometimes people are in pursuit of a higher education and higher education is good, I'm all for it. But if it's all absorbing and you do not have time for prayer, you do not have time to study the word of God, you do not have time to serve God in witnessing to others, then that has become a God to you or I." Some people are so consumed with social media, they know everything that's happening on Facebook and Twitter and so forth, but they probably couldn't quote one Bible verse by memory, or maybe they could, maybe it's just a few, but they don't have time to serve God. There's people that are so up-to-date with current events I know a man that you go, you go visit this man, he can tell you everything that's happening in the world. And I just look at him and ask him what he's doing about it. Doesn't come to church. Consumed with making money. Not serving the Lord. His mind is just absorbed in other things. But yet he knows the end is near. Friend, we can, friends, we can know that the end is near. But unless we are doing something to make sure we're ready, it doesn't really matter because we won't be going home. It says in the book of Judges 5 verse 8, speaking of Israel, they chose new gods and there was war in their gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among the 40,000 in Israel. They had no peace or joy. They were filled with anxiety and without hope. Why? Their shield of faith was gone. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, had no power in their life. And it's possible it's no different with us today when we turn to the artificial and put confidence in the flesh. Is there strife in your home? Is there strife in your relationships? Is there a division in your heart? Are you trying to serve God and mammon? Have we chose another God? You know, out of his faithfulness, God convicts us. He corrects us. He redirects us. Redirects us in life. Why? Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'm going to read verse 5, and then we're going to pick up at verse 23. Verse 5 says, a wise man will hear and will increase in learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel. So you have the, the wise builder and the foolish builder. You have the wise virgin and the foolish virgins. There's a lot of comparison in the word of God. But when we hear, hearing is doing. You read the book of Revelation, it says, he that hears and does so he reads he hears and he does he's blessed so this is a combination if we're going to receive the blessing of the Lord we have to have why does he convict us Proverbs 123 he says if you turn at my reproof I will pour out my spirit upon you and I will make my words known unto you isn't it amazing think about this how many want the spirit of God poured out it means we got to respond to the correction in our life so that we may receive and hear the direction he's leading us into. But there's a group of people that kind of refuse to listen. And I'll tell you, before I go on, I'm going to read, I put this quote in my Bible because it's there to remind me. I find certain spirit of prophecy quotes and I print them out real small and I tape them in the front of my Bible so I never forget them. And it has to do with listening to the Holy Spirit or refusing to listen. It says, Every time you refuse to listen to the message of mercy, you strengthen yourself in unbelief. Every time you fail to open the door of your heart to Christ, you become more and more unwilling to listen to the voice of him that speaks. You diminish your chance of responding to the last appeal of mercy. In other words, you begin to form a callous On your conscience. When I was a builder working in the construction field, I'd get calluses on my hands. I'd come home, my wife would ask me to scratch her back and I'd just rub my palm on her back. (laughs) It was so calloused. But when we don't listen to God's voice, when we keep pushing them off and pushing them off, we begin to seal our fate Because we cut off the only source of life that we are connected to. We cannot repent. Remember, friends, repentance is a gift for God, from God, and we cannot repent if we grieve away the Spirit of God. It goes on to say here, Let it not be written of you as of ancient Israel. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. Hosea four seventeen. let not Christ weep over you as he wept over Jerusalem, saying, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen does garner her brood under her wings, and yet ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Friends, I want to encourage you to go home and pray the prayer, Lord, search me and try me and show me if there's any evil way in me. Show me if there's another God in my life. He has proven himself faithful to us, committed. You're the apple of his eye. There's nothing more important to him than you getting home. And before you can get home, the restoration process has to begin here and now. And it begins with responding to his correction. Turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit upon you and I will make my words known unto you. Because I have called and you have refused I have stretched out my hand, and no man has regard it, but you have not. Why? But you have set at not. all my counsel. This is what's happening in the human heart of these people, he says. You have set at not. all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. Verse, that's verse 25, continuing Proverbs 1, verse 26. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. Now, that, that verse has always puzzled me is God really sitting on his throne laughing like, ha, 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 ha? <laughs> no, that's not the laughter that the psalmist is referring to. It's more in the context of, ha, huh, now, now you want to call out to me? You have set it not all my counsel with none of my reproof. Verse 27, when your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then you shall call upon me. You see, in the good times, we're not thinking about calling on God. We wait, we wait, we wait. He's convicting us to give all, to serve, to live, to do for him. But we're so consumed with the world that we keep pushing it off and we wait and wait. And then when calamity comes, we want to cry out to him. I think we're all guilty of that in some measure, are we not? But it's when we consistently do it and we grieve him away. Then shall you call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they will not find me. Why? Verse 29, for they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. It's not just some. This is, the, this is the result of constantly grieving God away. When you hear his voice and you just keep pushing him off, when you know he's telling you to, to give something up, to stop watching something, stop playing something, stop dressing a certain way, stop talking a certain way, stop eating a certain way, and start doing something different. And we just keep pushing him off and pushing him off. We form that callous on our conscience we hate the knowledge. We hate to choose the fear of the Lord. We've done of his counsel. We despise his reproof. He says, therefore, you shall eat the fruit of your own way and be filled with your own devices. For the turning way of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But I'm glad it doesn't answer, uh, stop there. Verse 33, but, he says, this is good news here, but whosoever hearkens unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. Friends, God is speaking to our heart today to search our heart, calling us to search our heart and know if there is any other God in our lives. He seeks to turn us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. So it says here in the steps to Christ, Christ came to manifest the love of God to the world to draw the hearts of all men to himself. Now there's a step. The very first step, friends, towards salvation is responding to the drawing of the love of Christ. And I would suggest to you, it's the very first step you and I have to take every single day. Every morning when you get up, consecrate yourself anew to him. Commit yourself to him. Commit yourself in such a way that no matter what he asks you to do that day, where to go, or what to do, you're willing to do it. You see, in order for the gospel, the good news, to go to all the world, we have to believe in the message. We have to believe in our Commander-in-Chief, Jesus Christ. We have to be all in, holding nothing back. It is that man may understand the joy of forgiveness, the peace of God that Christ draws them through the manifestation of his love. If they respond to his drawing, yielding their hearts to his grace, he will lead them step by step to a full knowledge of himself. And this is eternal life. So I have a question for everyone. And this question comes from Steps to Christ, page 58. Who has your heart? Who has your heart? With whom are your thoughts? Of whom do you love to converse about? Who has your warmest affections and best energies? You know, there's some people perhaps here today or listening or will watch later online that know more about sports data than they do of the Word of God. There's some people out here today that know more about what's happening on social media than they do the Word of God. They spend more time there than they do in the Word of God. Some people come to their place of employment and they got all kinds of things to say about a variety of things that they've been listening to or watching in the world and they claim to be Christians but they don't talk about Christ. I wanna encourage you friends, those young people out here today listening to me, going to school, going to learn a vocation, that vocation is just a means to an end. That's just an instrument in which God will use to put you somewhere if you're willing to let him lead you so that you can share the faithfulness of God to others. So that as you're sitting here today, experience the freedom and joy of salvation, others may hear and experience it as well. Who has your warmest affections and best energies? You know, my wife wants to see me in heaven, and I want to see her in heaven. So in our times of marriage, of course, things happen. And she'll say, hey, you know, you're acting like that. You shouldn't act like that. And I'll say to her at times, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, that's not Christ-like. Am I her enemy or is she my enemy when she does that or I do that? You know, often our spouse or a good friend will point something out that's absolutely wrong and uh, out of bounds in our life and we get all bent out of shape, don't we? Isn't that true? Sometimes you'll hear a message from the pulpit and you'll be thinking, man, why is he picking on me today? <laughs> I once heard a, had a, had a lady tell me out in a church in uh, Sutherland, Oregon, she says, Pastor, she says, you stepped on my toes today. She said, but you did it in a very polite way. Jesus does that. You know, he's so good. He's already convicting us at times about something, a pitfall in our lives where Satan is going to snare us. And if we're listening and paying attention, we'll hear and respond and take ownership of that issue in our life. It's only as we confess our sins that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, that's taken ownership of the defect in our life. I tell the story sometimes, there's this little boy named Johnny. I'm sorry if your name's Johnny out there, anybody. Little boy named Johnny, and he's always getting caught stealing something from the store. And his mother gets frustrated with him one day, and he, she says to him, Johnny, you're a thief. And he says, Mom, no, I'm not. I just like taking stuff once in a while. Well, you know what? God can't help little Johnny because Johnny's not willing to confess and take ownership of the issue in his life. And so when you go home and you pray, Lord, and I encourage you and I pray you will do it, show me the other gods in my life. Show me where my affections are consumed on something or someone else above you. Show me what has just absorbed my time and taken away the opportunity to serve you in the church, in the community, in the mission field. He will speak to your heart. Proverbs 23, 26 in closing says, my son, my daughter, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Why does he want your heart? Because he wants to give you and I a new heart. The whole heart must be yielded to God or the change can never be wrought by which we are to be restored in his likeness. By nature, we are alienated from God the Holy Spirit describes our condition in such words as these, dead in trespasses and sins, the whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, no soundness in it. We're held fast in the snare of Satan, taken captive by him at his will. God desires to heal us, friends, to set us free. But since this requires an entire transformation, a renewing of the whole nature, we must yield ourselves wholly to him. The warfare against self is the greatest battle that has ever fought, was ever fought, and will ever be fought in your life and mine. The yielding of self, surrendering all to the will of God requires a struggle, but the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in holiness. And so, friends, he wants to give you and I a new heart. He said, I will give you a new heart and take and put a new spirit within you. I will take away the stony heart, the stubborn heart, the self-willed heart, and give you a heart of flesh, one that's moldable, pliable, shapeable. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk on my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. And you shall be what? My people. My people, he says. And I will be your God, and will deliver you from all your uncleanness. When Jesus made the invitation to the rich young ruler, what was his response? But he was sad at the word. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. The world had his heart, his affections, and his best energies. In his discourse with Jesus, Jesus was revealing to him that he was having an affair with the ways of the world and did not have God supreme in his affections and his service. However, unless... he and we as well, friends, yield our heart to God and walk in the light as he is in the light. We cannot be cleansed from sin. We will find no peace, and we will have no eternal life. The young ruler thought he was doing everything right, yet he, his, in his heart he knew something was missing. When Jesus revealed to him what he lacked, he counted it too great a cost to give all to Christ. Friends, God wants your affections. He wants your time. He wants your talent. He wants your treasure. And he deserves every bit of it because he's given all for you and I. He's done everything necessary for your salvation and mine, left nothing undone that needs to be done for your happiness and well-being What is it that you're holding back today, friends? Is he asking you to retire because you have enough in your retirement account to secure you for the rest of your life? And he wants you to work in the field full time? Is he asking you to take up a different vocation because he wants you somewhere else in life so that you can minister to people according to your experiences that he has given you? Is he asking you to serve in the church? Is he asking you to come to prayer meeting? because he should be here, because it's when we press together and we pray together that big things happen? Is he's asking you to move, go into the mission field and serve him full time? What's he asking you to do? What is keeping you and I from being fully committed, totally surrendered, everything on the altar for him? You know, we're coming to a crisis. It's not far off. And our possessions, our wealth, will mean nothing. And the only thing that's going to mean anything is knowing Christ and sharing him with somebody else. But if we don't start now, we won't do it all of a sudden when the crisis breaks forth upon us. I invite you to stand as we sing our closing hymn, 330. <laughs>